I don't know how to read notes. I can't read music. And I don't, I can't count too well. And I don't know how to work this machine. But that's the story of my life. You go with it even if you don't know what's going on. Keep talking, singing, smiling, and taping. Frances Ethel Gum was born on June 10, 1922, to Ethel and Frank Gum in Grand Rapids, Minnesota. She was the youngest of three daughters and therefore given the nickname Baby. She later remembered her youngest years as the happiest period in her life. The older Gum sisters, Mary Jane and Dorothy, who went by Jimmy, were already performing as the double singing act, and Baby joined them when she was two years old. They became the gumdrops, and Baby Gum was already capturing the attention of audiences with her strong voice. Frank Gum owned a movie theater and started using it as a place to make sexual advances on teenage boys. When he was eventually caught in the mid-1920s, the Gums were asked to leave and moved to Lancaster, California in October of 1926. Frank took charge of the movie theater in the small town, and it became a major draw for those living there. The Gum Girls continued performing throughout venues in the Valley and became integral to their new home in Lancaster. Ethel Gum pushed for her daughters to pursue show business and got them a regular spot on Big Brother Ken's Kitties Hour in August of 1928. Every Wednesday afternoon, the Gum Sisters would perform on the air. They were also enrolled in dance classes and driven back and forth from Lancaster to Hollywood and back to Lancaster again every single weekend. Ethel's work to get her daughters into movies finally came true in 1929 when the Gum sisters were cast to sing a song in the short, The Big Review, which proved that seven-year-old baby Gum was already a powerful screen presence. Maurice Kuzel, one of the producers of the variety shows the Gum sisters performed in, said that Bay was the whole thing, really, even as a young kid. Thankfully, her sisters Mary Jane and Jimmy didn't mind that she was getting all of the attention, as they wanted out of show business. But that meant that Baby was now the sole attraction for Ethel to set her sights on. She prevented Baby from playing with her friends in case she got hurt and forced her young daughter to audition for movie executives against her will. Ethel even got Baby hooked on pet pills at the age of nine to keep her energy up, and when she had trouble sleeping, Ethel supplied sleeping tablets. Frank Gum was unhappy with Ethel's constant pushing of Baby as she was incredibly close with her father. This only resulted in constant arguments between the two parents, which scared Baby. Ethel started having an affair with Will Gilmore, a terrifying man who had very white teeth, very bad clothes, a miserable haircut, and he was a petty, weak man, narrow-minded and unkind, Judy later wrote. When Frank was away, the Gums would have dinner at the Gilmore home, where Will would delight in criticizing Babe and her mother would join in on the fun. Frank continued preying on teenage boys in Lancaster like he had in Grand Rapids. Babe heard rumors about his activities, but assumed it was just a rumor spread by Will Gilmore. Ethel was offered a job in Los Angeles to teach singing at Maurice Kuzel's School of Song and Dance, and everyone except for Frank moved to L.A. in 1933 after Mary Jane graduated high school. Babe started attending the Lawler School for Professional Children, where she was groomed to become a star. She also met Mickey Rooney, a future collaborator and best friend. 
Ethel lost her job when the Great Depression hit, and the Gum sisters were forced to travel the country and perform to make money for their family. While in Chicago, the Gum sisters were renamed the Garlands by George Jessel, the master of ceremonies at the Oriental Theater where they were performing. After changing their name, they became incredibly popular and continued touring throughout the United States. They even performed at Grauman's Chinese Theater and the Orpheum, two of the most important venues in Los Angeles. Babe drew the attention of audiences and critics alike. W.D. Oliver, who wrote for the Los Angeles Evening Herald, said, She was a youngster who has a divine instinct to be herself on stage, along with a talent for singing, a trick of rocking the spectator with rhythms, and a capacity of putting emotion into her performance. While his daughters were enjoying success, Frank's theater was starting to fail, and he mainly looked forward to seeing the girls whenever he could. Babe always hated having to say goodbye to her father and felt bad for his sorry state. His reputation was beginning to be ruined as he had relationships with several high schoolers in Lancaster and was starting to be found out. He finally failed to pay the rent for his theater and joined Ethel and the girls in Los Angeles in 1935. Babe got tired of her nickname and decided she wanted to be called Judy instead. After frantically performing across theaters in the U.S., the Garlands finally decided to take a vacation up at Lake Tahoe. Judy said, As we were driving back home, we discovered that we left all of our hats at the hotel, so we had to turn around and go back for them. When we got there, a friend of ours dashed out to the car and said, Are you lucky, Judy? Lou Brown, the songwriter, just got here, and we're going to sing for him right away. He started dragging me into the hotel, and before I knew what it was all about, there I was, standing in front of Mr. Brown. Brown reported back to Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer, who was impressed, and Judy signed a contract in September of 1935, making $100 a week before moving to $1,000 throughout the course of seven years. For the financially unstable gums, as well as being in the midst of the Great Depression, this was a deal too good to pass up. Ethel started working at the Pasadena Community Playhouse, and Frank had found another theater to manage in Lomita. They hardly ever got along, and Ethel resumed her affair with Will Gilmore. Judy started attending classes and being educated in the world of movies at Metro Studios. She also had a guest spot on NBC's Shell Chateau Hour, which aired all across the country. During one of her performances on the show on November 17th, also the day of Ethel's birthday, Frank passed away from spinal meningitis. Judy was heartbroken, but Ethel showed no sign of grief even spending the next few days after Frank's death with her lover. Judy was getting a taste for life at MGM, which was a highly controlling studio under the view of Louis B. Mayer, who once told Mickey Rooney, It's not your life, not as long as you're working for me. MGM has made your life. Spies were hired to keep watch over the stars, which included the likes of Katherine Hepburn, Ava Gardner, Clark Gable, Spencer Tracy, and Shirley Temple. Mayer was an incredibly demanding and problematic studio head who preyed on the young talents, including Judy. After being groped by Mayer time and time again, she finally stood up to him and was disgusted that he started crying and begging her for mercy. She later wrote, It's amazing how these big men, who had been around so many sophisticated women all their lives, could act like idiots. After a year of being signed with MGM and getting no roles, as she was deemed either too old or too young, Judy finally got her first part in Pigskin Parade. She was actually loaned out to 20th Century Fox for the picture, in which she played Sari Daw, the younger sister of college football hero Amos. She later said she didn't like the movie and felt self-conscious. In a 1938 article for Motion Picture Magazine, she said, 
They wouldn't let me see the rushes, which was too bad because if I'd seen them, I could have improved myself. I didn't wear any makeup and I sure looked it. I was afraid my freckles would show, but now I have gotten over my freckle fear since I have observed that Myrna Loy and Katherine Hepburn and Joan Crawford also have freckles. The film opened to decent reviews, but Judy was hardly mentioned. MGM finally created a picture with her in it, Broadway Melody of 1938. Judy later said going to the premiere was a highlight of her career. The film was followed up by several smaller films. She did her first of many collaborations with Mickey Rooney in 1937 in a film called Thoroughbreds Don't Cry. As she appeared in more and more movies, Judy's star power grew until she was first billed in the credits for 1938's Listen, Darling. But the studios were pressuring her to conform to their beauty standards and put Judy on a rigorous diet to lose weight. She later said, From the time I was 13, there was a constant struggle between MGM and me, whether or not to eat, how much to eat, what to eat. I remember this more vividly than anything else about my childhood. Along with the pills that she was already taking to make her energetic and to help her fall asleep, Judy started taking diet pills that were a mixture of benzedrine and phenobarbital. They helped her shed pounds, but also were incredibly addicting and dangerous. She did complain to me once that she would love to stop, stop at all, but, but she doesn't know how. She says you can't go tell Mr. Mayor you won't do it. So that meant you just had to do it in those days. That's what it meant. She knew there was no way that she, she could uh, turn and, you know, refuse this medication. Mayer and the studio's producers just saw their actors as dolls to be used for their every bidding, and especially Judy, who was an impressionable young girl. But she still enjoyed doing things that every 13-year-old does, like going to the movies and theme parks. She said, I'm the champion ping-pong player at my house, and I'm crazy about baseball. I love going to baseball games, and I generally cheer myself hoarse whenever anyone makes a home run. She even convinced her mother to let her attend public school for a year and graduated from Bancroft Junior High School. In 1938, Judy toured the country to promote her film Everybody Sing and perform songs for ecstatic audiences. She was incredibly popular throughout the United States, and her voice appealed to young and old audiences alike. Judy was next cast in the now iconic The Wizard of Oz, which was her first starring role. The film started out as something much different than it became. Originally, it was intended to be a slapstick comedy starring Shirley Temple as Dorothy, Ed Wynn or W.C. Fields as the Wizard, and Fanny Rice or Beatrice Lilly as Glinda the Good Witch. Once Temple was deemed unqualified for the musical elements of the film and the other four actors dropped out, the movie became more of a drama. Producer and songwriter Arthur Freed began writing the songs, 
which were in the more traditional style rather than the popular swing style of the time, as originally intended. Filming finally began in October of 1938 with Richard Thorpe helming the picture. He didn't last long, as Buddy Ebsen suffered an almost deadly allergic reaction to breathing in the aluminum powder on his Tin Man costume. Thorpe was fired and replaced by George Cukor, who changed Dorothy's look as Thorpe had imagined it, a glamorous starlet with long blonde hair. Cukor replaced Judy's blonde wig with her natural hair put in long braids, and asked her to play the role more naturally rather than theatrically. Before she had to give up the wig, Judy wanted to wear it all the time, even to school, but the producers wouldn't let her. Cukor was only director for about a week in November before Victor Fleming took over. Around the same time, the Tin Man was recast with Jack Haley in the part. He didn't record the songs, though, and had to lip-sync to Ebsen's voice. Filming resumed, though not without obstacles. Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch of the West, suffered from severe burns to her hands and face after a practical effect went wrong. Hamilton's devil was also injured when the broom she was riding on exploded. The movie took over five months to film, which is at least five times the length it normally took to complete a picture. The budget rose daily due to issues with costumes, casualties, and delays in filming. Are you doing that on purpose? Or can't you make up your mind? That's the trouble. I can't make up my mind. I haven't got a brain. Only straw. How can you talk if you haven't got a brain? I don't know. But some people without brains do an awful lot of talking, don't they? Yes, I guess you're right. Well, we haven't really met properly, have we? Why, no. How do you do? How do you do? Very well, thank you. Oh, I'm not feeling at all well. You see, it's very tedious being stuck up here all day long with a pole up your back. Dear, that must be terribly uncomfortable. Can't you get down? Down? No, you see, I'm, well, I'm... Oh, well, here, let me help you. Oh, that's very kind of you. Very kind. Victor Fleming had to replace George Cukor as director of Gone with the Wind, and therefore had to be replaced himself. King Vidor took over and was responsible for the now iconic Somewhere Over the Rainbow scene that was originally going to be cut from the film, as the producers thought it slowed down the pacing and didn't fit into the movie. Shooting finally wrapped in March of 1939 with an overall budget of 2,777,000, which is almost $58.5 million today. Test screenings were held in June and ended up getting the movie cut down to a little less than two hours. Immediately after Judy finished filming The Wizard of Oz, she was sent on a publicity tour for Babes in Arms with her co-star, Mickey Rooney. They performed in theaters around the U.S., five shows a day during the week and seven shows a day on weekends. The Wizard of Oz opened in 1939 to humongous crowds and yet still did not make its entire cost back due to marketing promotions costing the picture even more. It was only when the film began showing on television every single year starting in 1956 that it made the money back. Judy was named Best Juvenile Performer at the 1940 Academy Awards. Somewhere Over the Rainbow also won Best Song, and Judy later said, It has always been my song. I get emotional, one way or the other, about every song I sing. But maybe I get more emotional about Rainbow. I never shed any phony tears about it. If happy little bluebirds fly beyond the rainbow 
Judy achieved her childhood dream of becoming a movie star and getting her hand and footprints cemented at Grauman's Chinese Theater on October 10, 1939. She moved into a picturesque new home in Los Angeles that she had designed, now living with her mother, grandmother, and sister Mary Jane, now named Sue, who had gotten married and divorced from a musician. Ethel and Will Gilmore got married on November 17, 1939, the day of Ethel's birthday and Frank's death. Judy was heartbroken, both at the fact that her mother married Gilmore and on the anniversary of her beloved father's passing. Judy and her sisters suspected that Gilmore had only married Ethel to reap the benefits of Judy's success, as he used her money to buy things for himself and his children. Ethel and Will were only married for a total of four years, but the hurt Judy had experienced from both of them never fully went away. Despite feeling like she was maturing and even dated several players on the MGM lot, Judy was continually put in virginal roles, especially as a foil to Mickey Rooney's wild characters in the Andy Hardy series and Strike Up the Band. Even though she didn't find the films very satisfying, she loved working with Rooney, who always made her laugh and helped her fine-tune her acting skills. She said that he taught her that good singing is a form of good acting, at least it is if you want people to believe what you're singing. If you can make yourself believe what you're saying, and you have to say some pretty silly things in musicals, everything falls into place. Well, have we ever asked you to do anything that wasn't good for you? Look, Willie, Jimmy's a boss. And the only reason we've gotten anywhere with the band is because we've listened to him. And everybody's always done what he's asked us to. Even hard things. Things that we sometimes didn't agree with. But the only reason the band has done anything, the, the show and the play and the dance, well, those were little things. And now, don't you see, Willie, you're giving us a chance to do a big thing. Why, to Jimmy and me and, and every person in the band, you're more important than all the broadcasts in the world. We've got the rest of our lives to do broadcasts. In 1938, Judy started spending time with musician Artie Shaw, who was 12 years her senior. He said she was marvelous, bubbly, laughing, full of joy, just starting life. I was enchanted by her, crazy about her. I dug her. That's better than loved or cared for. Judy pursued him relentlessly, but his eye had been caught by Lana Turner on the set of Two Girls on Broadway. They ended up eloping in February 1940, and Judy only found out about it when the news was on the front of the paper. She was distraught, and Lana's betrayal started a bitter rivalry between them. Yet they were slated to star in Ziegfeld Girl together, which began filming in December of 1940. She had a difficult time working on the film as she thought herself inferior to her co-stars, Turner and Hedy Lamarr. It didn't help that her character was a young adult trying to find her way in the world and attempting to measure up to the more glamorous stars, just as Judy had experienced for herself on the MGM lot.
But she was so popular and beloved by her audiences that her original seven-year contract was replaced with a newer, higher-paying contract, meant to last until 1945. Judy worked non-stop on a total of ten films throughout the course of four years, and even made room to appear on Bob Hope's radio show every Tuesday night. Judy struggled to work with Ziegfeld Girl director Busby Berkeley, who was a controlling and abusive man with grand visions and didn't know how to put them across to his actors. The pair had worked together a couple times before, and each time on set, Judy suffered under the mental and physical anguish that Berkeley caused. She was also working 16 to 24 hour days, only held together by her pills. Despite their obvious difficulties working together, Judy and Berkeley collaborated a total of six times. Seven if you count the scrap version of 1950's Annie Get Your Gun that had a tumultuous production and ended up getting both Judy and Berkeley fired and replaced by Betty Hutton and George Sidney, respectively. Judy's next serious relationship was with composer David Rose, who is 12 years older than Judy. She said, We met at a party and started talking about music and discovered that we liked the same things. And well, we just sort of started going together. They got engaged on her 18th birthday, but waited until 1941 to wed, as he was in the process of getting a divorce, and MGM did not want there to be a scandal. Judy's mother, Ethel, attempted to break off the relationship, thinking her daughter was too young and Rose was not a good match. Many of Judy's friends speculated that her reason for marriage was to get away from her controlling mother. The Roses moved into a house in Bel Air and entertained many guests throughout the years of their marriage. After filming for Babes on Broadway wrapped, Judy and David Rose went on a USO tour in the Midwest to boost morale for soldiers serving in World War II, just like her character in the upcoming production for Me and My Gal, in which she co-starred with Hollywood newcomer Gene Kelly. Judy came down with strep throat during the tour and her relationship with Rose, who was too morose and didn't match her high level of energy, had begun to fall apart. He disliked Judy's mother's involvement in their lives. She had hired a married couple to do all of the cooking and housework, as Judy had never learned how, and attempted to take control of Rose's money since she was already in charge of Judy's assets. Judy discovered she was pregnant in 1942, and both her mother and MGM pressured her into getting an abortion. They didn't want Judy's virginal and perfect scream persona to be ruined by the image of her being pregnant. Judy's mother took her to get a back alley abortion, which only made her insomnia and pill addictions worse. Around this time, Judy and David separated and officially divorced in 1944. Judy said in a 1944 interview that they divorced for personality reasons. Our personality reasons were so conflicting that we could hardly agree on one point, and yet we wanted to please the other so badly that these differences never came out into the open. We tried to make ourselves over from inside out, but you can't do that. You can't change the real you. You can only pretend to. So there was a constant heaviness in the air. In 1942, Judy began an affair with matinee idol Tyrone Power, who is currently in the midst of his own messy relationship with actress Annabella. The two fell deeply and madly in love, yet MGM and 20th Century Fox, which was Power's home studio, immediately wanted to put an end to the relationship. Mayer hired Betty Asher, a publicist five years older than Judy, who acted as her friend-slash-confidant-slash-sometimes-lover. She would report everything Judy told her about Tyrone Power to the studio in a conniving scheme to split them apart. 
Judy later said that Asher gave a report to the studio office every week on the people I saw, what I ate, what time I came in at night, and what time I got up in the morning. I can remember crying for days after I found out what she was doing to me. Unfortunately, it wasn't for several years that Judy finally learned the truth. She began working on Girl Crazy in January 1943 with Mickey Rooney and Busby Berkeley. She suffered a nervous breakdown as a result of the stressful working environment and the fact that Power was not following through with Judy's request to divorce his wife. Power's friend Watson Webb said that it was hard for Tyrone to face big issues. Judy's weight dropped severely and she was bedridden for five days. Power was training for his upcoming service in the Marine Corps in Virginia when Judy told him that she was pregnant with his child. It was almost certainly a ruse. Judy needed to know if Power would finally leave Annabella and marry her. No matter how many times Power asked for a divorce, Annabella refused every time. The relationship between Tyrone and Judy was over, but the studios continued to rub salt in the wound by having Betty Asher lie to Judy that Power was reading Judy's love letters to his Marine friends while they were serving overseas. Somehow, Judy believed the story and refused to answer any of his letters or messages, calling him Tyrone the Phony to her friends. Power was heartbroken, even more so when a screen of Meet Me in St. Louis was shown in a makeshift theater at his outpost. He wrote to his friend, My God, but she never looked more beautiful. It would have been nice if I could have been a brunette. Yes, you should have been a brunette. Then nothing could have stopped us. Just think how we look going out together. You with your raven black hair and me with my auburn. Rose, I've decided something. Mm -hmm. I'm going to let John Truett kiss me tonight. Esther Smith! Well, if we're going to get married, I may as well start it. Nice girls don't let men kiss them until after they're engaged. Men don't want the bloom rubbed off. Personally, I think I have too much bloom. While Power was serving overseas, Judy began serving the war effort by spending her time in performing at the Hollywood Canteen. She also began dating 34-year-old producer Joe Mankiewicz in 1943. The two formed an instant bond, Mankiewicz saying, We made each other laugh a lot, and we became used to each other very quickly. Judy thought he was the most wonderful man that ever lived, though he was currently still married to a wife in the psychiatric hospital in Kansas, and had two young sons. Mankiewicz viewed Judy as a figure to make over and rebirth, so he got her a psychoanalyst sometime in mid-1943. Judy's mother and Mayer were equally outraged and demanded that Judy quit her sessions immediately. Mayer decided to fire Mankiewicz from MGM, which only succeeded in making him incredibly popular at his new studio, 20th Century Fox. There, he wrote and directed films such as All About Eve, Cleopatra, and Guys and Dolls. He and Judy continued their affair, and she still attended her therapy sessions. Judy became fascinated with psychology and read books by Freud, Jung, and Adler, yet later said she benefited not one bit. Her therapy was also not successful, as she did not trust the doctor treating her and began to tell him lies every morning. She only did it to keep Mankiewicz happy and to defy her mother in any way that she could. In the summer of 1943, Judy began a tour around the United States to some of the biggest audiences she had ever performed for. She helped sell war bonds with the Hollywood Cavalcade with stars such as Fred Astaire, James Cagney, Lucille Ball, and Mickey Rooney. They raised over $1 billion in war bonds, which is equivalent to over $16 billion today. The work was exhausting, but she enjoyed being able to put a smile on the soldiers' faces.
When she returned to Hollywood, Mankiewicz's wife had also come back, and he did not want to continue his relationship with Judy. Judy told him, just as she had with power, that she was pregnant and he would marry her or else she would terminate the pregnancy. He decided to call her bluff and scheduled an appointment in New York City. Judy took a pregnancy test, and when it turned out she was not expecting after all, the two parted ways. In December of 1943, Judy submitted answers for Movieland magazine, in which she filled in the blanks for some personal questions. Here are some of the things she said. My first poem was composed when I was four, and I heard my sisters making up verse. I went for rhythm, not rhyme, and the result was, bookie, bookie, I saw a star, money, money, salt, salt, salt. I like bonfires on the beach, walking in the rain, anything chocolate, Christmas Eve. I dislike that put on southern accent, salted peanuts, attending to details, mayonnaise. I've never worn a watch because I'd rather not know what time it is. I'm the worst backseat driver in the world. My biggest thrill was my 21st birthday party last June. My sister, Jimmy, Danny Kay, Keenan Wynn, Dory Sherry, Betty Asher surprised me by making records of a script they'd written called The Life of Judy Garland. It began with my first cry, which Danny Kay gave to the tune of Over the Rainbow, and continued in a kidding vein to tell what had happened to me in 21 years. It was terribly funny, but it ended with a serious little speech given by Keenan, so beautiful that I cried. I was so touched and so happy. Judy was offered the part in Meet Me in St. Louis, which she was extremely hesitant to take part in. She thought the role of Esther Smith was too similar to the role she had grown tired of playing years before, and didn't want to be overshadowed by whoever was playing the part of Tootie, her younger sister. She finally decided to do it, but fought back by barely showing up to work, and when she did, she could be hours late. She also didn't like working with director Vincent Minnelli, who didn't know how to communicate with his actors very well, and made Judy feel uncharacteristically uncertain about her acting capabilities. She had always been able to memorize her lines at the drop of a hat and would perform as well as she could under any kind of direction she received, but Manelli made her feel unnerved. It didn't help that child actor Margaret O'Brien, who played Tootie, was emotionally manipulated every time she had a crying scene. Her mother told her every time before the camera rolled that her dog was going to be killed unless she did the scene. Judy felt terribly for the way O'Brien was being treated, knowing firsthand what it was like to have such a controlling and manipulative mother. Thankfully, the movie was a huge success, and Judy ended up being happy with the final product, later saying she was more pleased with Meet Me in St. Louis than anything else I had done up until that time. In retrospective, on working with Judy, Manelli said, You might uh, tell her 20 things, we'll say, to change in the performance, and, and, and God knows she had enough on her mind. But, uh, and, and you didn't know whether you were getting through to her or not, you know? Because you say yes, but everything would be perfect. And she would remember everything. She was a fantastic artist. She could do. She knew that there were twenty different ways of playing a scene, you know. And uh, I love working with it, with that kind of person. After filming wrapped, Judy began seeing Vincent Minnelli. It's unknown, but long been speculated that their relationship was a lavender marriage, since Minnelli was gay. Judy began filming The Clock in June 1944. It was the first movie in which she would completely display her acting chops, as the film had no songs in it. After a couple months of shooting, Judy finally convinced producers to replace director Fred Zinneman with Minnelli. During filming, Judy moved in with her mother, grandmother, sister Jimmy, and Jimmy's daughter, Judy. She said it was the most wonderful thing to go home. Shortly after, she moved in with Minnelli. 
The clock finally wrapped in December, and Judy gave Vincent a clock with a note that read, Only you could give me the confidence I so badly needed. If the picture is a success, and I think it's a cinch, my darling Vincent is responsible for the whole goddamn thing. I guess he thought I was trying to get away with something. This city must seem very strange to you. Oh, yes, ma'am. I'm green as grass. I suppose you lived here all your life. No. Oh, you mean you're a stranger here yourself? No, not exactly. I work here. I came here three years ago. Oh, you got folks here then. No. There's Radio City up ahead. And Saxfield Avenue. You mean you live all alone? No. There's St. Patrick's Cathedral. Uh, you're not married, are you? No, I live with another girl. Oh. Well, what do you do, if you don't mind my asking? I'm a secretary in an office. Oh, I see. Uh, well, what kind of an office do you work in, Miss, uh, uh, Alice? Gesundheit. <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, what kind of an office do you work in? Just Martin? an office. Oh. I, uh, guess you think I'm pretty nosy. Yes, you are. Only about a month after finishing the clock, Judy began working on the Harvey Girls, which had been planned by MGM for about two years, originally with Lana Turner as the lead. When the movie was released in 1946, Judy received rave reviews, including one from Liberty. It's a certainty that if Judy gets any more talented, she'll probably explode. Now I'm from the Harvey house. And we got a lot of hungry people over there waiting to be served. And I don't want to hurt anybody. Honestly, I don't. But we're famous for our steaks. And I'm not going to let anybody stop me. So come on, get them up. Put them up. That's right. Now you, tell me where that meat is or I'll shoot. What meat? Even though Judy and Vincent were now engaged as of January 1945, Judy began an affair with Orson Welles, who was married to actress Rita Hayworth at the time. The pair were almost caught several times, including once when Judy accidentally invited both Manili and Welles to dinner on the same night and had to rush out the door before they both arrived. Judy decided she wanted to leave MGM after her contract expired and star on Broadway. Mayer did not approve of this at all and decided to endorse the marriage between her and Manili in hopes that it would convince Judy to stay with the studio. Manelli was relieved that they had Mayer's blessing, as it was clear to anyone working for MGM that he would do whatever it took to destroy relationships if he thought it necessary. The Manellis married on June 15, 1945, at Ethel Garland's home. Their honeymoon was in New York City right after the Second World War ended, and there was a great sense of community and adventure in the air. In a 1946 article for Screenland magazine, Judy wrote about her thoughts on war. She said, you can drive yourself crazy trying to figure out why God allows wars. Once I heard a group of women discussing this, and one of them said, How can there be a God when the terrible wars go on? How could he permit it? My own attitude towards war is fatalistic. I feel that human beings create the machines of destruction. We make the troubles that cause wars. True, people are dragged into war who have no control over it. But man, not God, is responsible. At the present time, there is still something in man's nature which permits the violence of war. All our lives we wonder about these things, but we'll have to wait for that afterlife in which I believe to find the answers. Judy decided to quit taking her pills and was eager to start a new life with Vincent. Judy learned she was pregnant in August and knew she wanted to keep the baby. 
She moved into Manelli's home in Los Angeles, which she expanded to make room for the baby's nursery and Judy's special bathroom and dressing room. She jumped into the role of dutiful housewife, even though the Manellis had a full staff working for them at their home. On March 12, 1946, Liza May Manelli was born. Judy suffered from severe postpartum depression and wasn't able to get back to work as quickly as she had hoped. She signed a new contract with MGM that lasted until 1950, doubling her original salary to a whopping $6,000 per week. She was unhappy to have caved in to MGM, as it wasn't the path she had wanted to take after having her child. She was happier on the stage with live audiences to interact with. In 1961, she told Life magazine that, A really great reception makes me feel like I have a great big warm heating pad all over me. People en masse have always been wonderful to me. I truly have a great love for an audience. I used to want to prove it to them by giving them blood, but I have a funny new thing now, a real determination to make people enjoy the show. I went to give them two hours of just pow. Her next film was The Pirate, her second collaboration with Gene Kelly. Minnelli was the director. Even though she was excited to work on the movie at first, her expectations were not met, and she missed 99 out of the total 135 days working on the film. She went back to her pills and would often arrive on set in a cloudy haze, not knowing where she was and who she was with. To make matters worse, her mother had tapped her home phone line and she felt betrayed by Vincent, who had become close to Jean Kelly, and Judy thought the two of them were purposely leaving her out of discussions and brainstorming sessions in relation to the film. The movie ended up not being fully completed by the time it was put in theaters, and was the only one in Judy's entire filmography to not make MGM a profit. Jean Kelly later said, Vincent and I honestly thought we were being so dazzlingly brilliant and clever that everybody would fall at our feet and swoon clean away in delight and ecstasy. Well, we were wrong. Who are you? In Madrid, I hear that young ladies do not walk out without their duenas. However, I should have thought that in a town like Port Sebastian, bodyguards were unnecessary. You, gracious lady, will always need a bodyguard. Even in the lonely wastes of the Sahara Desert, the sands would rise up and follow you. Tell me, what is your name? I do not see how that could possibly concern you. It is as vital to me as the beat of my heart. Are you married? No, but I will be by this time next week. And you should never step into the sight of other men. It is too great a provocation. Very well, I shall remove the provocation. Judy blamed Vincent for her unhappiness and the failure that the pirate had turned out to be, in her eyes. She was being spied on by someone, though it's still unclear to this day whether it was Vincent or someone at MGM. Judy felt she had no privacy or sense of self and returned to her psychoanalyst for help. In 1946, she wrote, I believe that it is possible for a woman to have a successful career and a happy marriage, too. I imagine that it's hard for a man to be married to an actress. He can't feel, as most men like to feel, that everything depends upon him. He knows his wife is financially independent. She must therefore make him feel that even though she can stand on her own feet financially, she is emotionally dependent on him, that everything else in her life, even her work, revolves around him. It's always better to promise less and do more. I'd rather do this than wind up with a guilty conscience because I hadn't carried out all my plans. Make plans, certainly, but don't be upset if something happens to make it impossible to carry them out. Judy also started having an affair with actor Yul Brynner, as she had basically separated herself from Manelli. 
She suffered from a nervous breakdown after she found Minnelli in bed with another man and attempted to slash her wrists. She checked into the Austin Riggs Foundation, a psychiatry clinic, which her psychiatrist thought would be a good fit. She wasn't pleased with her treatment and only stayed for a short period before any real progress could be made. Judy's friend, Ann Miller, later said, Judy has always been an emotional girl, and I think a lot of it probably was feeling sorry for herself. Just feeling sorry for herself and not being able to do anything about it. She was like somebody drowning. Her next film was Easter Parade, which was to be directed by Minnelli until Judy got him replaced with Charles Walters, who had only the June Allison and Peter Lawford movie Good News to his name. Gene Kelly was set to co-star, but broke his leg while playing softball and was replaced with Fred Astaire. Astaire was just about to retire, but jumped at the chance to work with Judy. The two got along beautifully, and Judy felt like Astaire gave her the confidence that she needed. I was born in Michigan and I wish and wish again that I was back in the town where I was born. There's a farm in Michigan and I'd like to fish again in the river that flows beside the field of waving corn. some soul am I. The movie ended up being one of MGM's highest grossing for 1948, and Judy was proud of her work. Unfortunately, film audiences were dwindling at the creation of television, and box office profits dropped alarmingly. In mid-1948, Dory Sherry became the new boss at MGM, and the empire that Mayer had built crumbled around him. He was no longer the all-powerful man at the studio, and Sherry was an unrelenting force who controlled every single film produced at MGM. Luckily, he left Easter Parade alone, as the musicals were one of the main draws for audiences. Judy was now MGM's prime asset and their most important player. She and Astaire collaborated again for the Barclays of Broadway, though Judy was completely exhausted and started her destructive behaviors again. After missing several days and important rehearsals, Judy was dropped from the film and replaced by Astaire's old partner, Ginger Rogers. One of Judy's best friends, actress Sylvia Sidney, let Judy stay with her and her husband. They helped her get back on her feet and to feel better about herself. MGM put her in The Good Old Summertime, a remake of the Christmas classic The Shop Around the Corner, starring James Stewart and Margaret Sullivan. Director Joe Pasternak decided to make the environment for the film as welcoming and forgiving as possible. There was never a word uttered in reclamation when she was late, didn't show up, or couldn't go on. Those of us who worked with her knew her magical genius and respected it. The production ended up going extremely well, and Judy hardly missed a day of work.
Mayer asked her co-star, Van Johnson, what they had done to achieve this seemingly impossible task. Johnson replied, we made her feel needed. The movie opened in 1949, and audiences loved it. 1975 Around this time, it was known that Judy was addicted to prescription drugs. She was being supplied by a large handful of pharmacies and drugstores, and would even steal from her friends' medicine cabinets when she visited their homes. Finally, Mayer decided to check Judy into a hospital in Boston and paid all of her bills out of his own pocket. She got to spend time in Cape Cod with her daughter Liza, and many of her friends came to visit while she was recovering. In the hospital, she spent a lot of time telling stories about her life and working in movies to a young girl who had been abused by her family so badly that she hadn't spoken in years. When it was time for Judy to leave, she said goodbye to the girl, who screamed her first words in two years. I love you, I love you, don't leave. Judy stayed, missing her train, and conversed with the girl for a few more hours. She later credited her experience with this girl as a big reason why she wanted to make A Child is Waiting, a film where she played a music teacher who works with children with mental disabilities. When Judy returned to California, her next movie was Summerstock, alongside Gene Kelly, once again, whom she said was a dear. You can work in pictures with some people and never really get to know them, but Gene and I have been friends ever since our first film. I was partly responsible for getting him there. I had seen him on Broadway in Pal Joey and had told Metro what a fine thing it would be if they put him into movies. We got through Summerstock, but not without a struggle. Gene encouraged me to forget what people might be saying, laughed with me, helped keep down the friction. I was late. I've been unpunctual all my life, and there were fights. I hate fights. I was wobbly and unsure and desperately trying to prove, not to the world, but to myself, that I was making good as a person. She barely showed up for work and got back onto the pills as the studio was pressuring her to lose the weight she had gained from her rehabilitation. She caused delays so great that Gene Kelly started organizing baseball games between the cast members while they waited. Even though he had been on her side during In the Good Old Summertime, director Joe Pasternak did not want to work on the film and had little patience with Judy. Mayer wouldn't let him quit, and the film finally got completed. Until it didn't. MGM decided there needed to be another musical number, and the entire cast had to be called back to work on Get Happy, one of Judy's most iconic scenes in her entire career. It was also the last scene she ever shot for an MGM production. Forget your troubles, come on, get happy. You better chase all your cares away. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy. Get ready for the judgment day. The sun is shining, come on, get happy. The Lord is waiting to take your hand. Shout hallelujah, come on, get happy. We're going to the promised land. We're here. Cross the river, cross your sins away in the tide. It's all so peaceful on the other side. She left the studio in September of 1950. Louis B. Mayer said in a statement to the press that MGM wished her all the success and happiness in the continuance of her career. But the magazines and newspapers slandered Judy's name and spread countless lies, causing her to go into a depressive state. 
She was taken in by Katherine Hepburn and received thousands of letters from fans giving her their love and support. MGM began to crumble after Judy's departure and Mayer resigned in August of 1951. Judy decided to spend her time out of work in New York City, where she attended the World Series. She also began seeing Sid Luft in September of 1950, though they had known each other off and on since 1937, when he had been Eleanor Powell's assistant. Summer Stock did incredibly well at the box office, and Judy was signed to a contract to perform on radio shows from November 1950 to March 1951. She was also considering breaking into Broadway, possibly starting with a remake of the Katharine Hepburn film Alice Adams. The Minnellis separated in 1951, but stayed friends to both be present for their daughter. Judy decided to go to London and perform for four weeks at the Palladium. She sold out every single show, and after her run ended, toured throughout Europe. I have found out where I belong, out there under the limelights, singing for my supper. I've been asked to make more movies, and of course I will. Maybe I'll make one over here. But from now on, it's the stage that has first call on me. She brought vaudeville back to New York City by performing at the Palace with custom costumes and sets and performed her greatest hits from her films. One reporter said that the standing ovation on her opening night lasted for 3 minutes and 18 seconds. She performed for a total of 19 weeks, two shows a day, before closing the curtain. It was like breathing again, having people let me know I still meant something to them, that they loved me and still wanted to hear me sing. She won a special Tony Award for her important contribution to the revival of vaudeville. Judy went back to California to perform at the Philharmonic, starting in April 1952 for a total of four weeks. Then she went to San Francisco for another four weeks, where halfway through her run learned that she was pregnant. She knew she wanted to marry Sid, but had wanted to wait until her plans for an upcoming U.S. tour had been followed through. They had a swift marriage on June 8th that every fan magazine seemed to scowl upon. Judy's mother was not happy either, saying, I'm not surprised, but I've been hoping it wouldn't happen. He's a bad guy. I couldn't tell Judy anything. She has to learn everything the hard way. She's a big girl now, but when will she grow up? To be fair, everyone had good reason to mistrust Luff. He put himself in charge of Judy's money and future earnings and barely gave the people working for them enough money to live off of. He spent more money on his racehorses than to support the son he shared with ex-wife actress Lynn Barry. Shortly before Judy's run at the Philharmonic, Luft was arrested for drunk driving and a stolen gun was found in his car, but his lawyers quickly bailed him out. Barry tried to warn Judy about Sid, but Judy brushed her off, thinking she was just jealous. Sid had helped her book London's Palladium, which had revived her career and faith in herself. On November 21, 1952, Lorna Luft was born in Santa Monica, California. Judy banned her mother from visiting, ignoring her friends' opinions that she was being selfish. Like with Liza, Judy suffered postpartum depression, which was made even worse by the fact that Sid had gone to watch one of his horses race on the day that Judy brought Lorna home. Ethel died of a heart attack just a few months later in her car on the way to work. Judy and her sisters had their mother laid to rest in Forest Lawn's Little Church of Flowers, where their father was also buried. Even though Judy hadn't spoken to her mother in months as a result of her attempts to alienate Liza from her parents and get her involved in show business, all Judy had to say at the service was, I didn't want her to die. As the years went on, Judy grew more and more embittered about her mother and what she had suffered at her hands. She planned her Hollywood comeback with A Star is Born, a remake of the 1937 film. 
about a woman who was groomed for stardom by an alcoholic Pygmalion figure named Norman Maine. Judy knew this movie would be a make-or-break point for her career and had to be the best performance she could give. Actors such as Cary Grant, Marlon Brando, Laurence Olivier, Humphrey Bogart, Tyrone Power, and Frank Sinatra were all considered for the part of Norman Maine, but it eventually went to James Mason. On October 12, 1953, Judy appeared in front of a camera for the first time in three years. Filming went smoothly for 10 days until Warner Brothers decided they wanted the film to be shot in Cinemascope, the biggest technological advancement in film since the invention of sound. Cinemascope was essentially widescreen, a large improvement from the small screens that had existed before. Changing the way the movie was filmed meant that everything they had shot before was completely scrapped, losing about $300,000 in over a week's worth of progress. The sets had to be altered slightly to fit the cinemascope frame, and cinematographer Sam Levitt quickly figured out that the camera had to basically be stagnant in order for the images to not appear warped. Judy was relatively well-behaved on set until the last couple of weeks. Director George Cukor complained to Katherine Hepburn that Judy would call in and say she couldn't come to work, but then be spotted at the racetrack or a restaurant. This is the behavior of someone unhinged, but there is an arrogance and a ruthless selfishness that eventually alienates one's sympathy. Judy told writer James Bacon in 1955 that she was tired of being the patsy for the production delays on this picture. It's easy to blame every production delay on the star. This was the story of my life at Metro, especially when I was a child actress. When some problem came up that they couldn't lick, the delay, no matter what had caused it, was always blamed on the star. Whoever was responsible figured that the star could get by without a bawling out. Filming ended in July of 1954 and cost a total of $6 million. Someone who worked on the film said that Judy is a perfectionist, and in this business, perfection costs money. In addition, she knew that her husband's career as a producer was riding on the picture, too. That's why she gave it everything she had. You told him you'd be there. That was, that was, that was before. I know it was before, but come on, get dressed. No. You just gonna sit here forever? Yes! Tonight and tomorrow night and for as long as I like. I don't want any of your homemade remedies. I know what you're trying to do, and the best thing you can do for me is to just leave me alone. You and everybody else, so thanks for the sympathy. I don't want it, not from you or Sympathy? That's not what you're getting from me, baby. You don't deserve it. Unfortunately, the movie was too long. In the words of Cukor, neither the human mind nor the human ass can stand three and a half hours of concentration. He managed to cut it down to about three hours without the help of his supposed producer, Sid Luft, who decided he was tired of working on the film and needed to take a vacation on the French Riviera. Judy's performance was highly praised by both audiences and critics. To everyone's dismay, Warner Brothers decided that the picture was still too long and Harry Warner got somebody to cut large chunks from the picture. Cukor had no say in what got to stay and what got to go, as he was currently in India working on Bowani Junction. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times said that every cut leaves a gaping, baffling hole, not only the emotional pattern, but the very sense of the thing is lost. Making matters worse, the discarded footage was completely destroyed, and the only remaining evidence of these scenes are still photographs taken during production. Movie theaters ended up losing money since audiences refused to pay full price for a butchered film. But, if there was going to be any good news, it was that Judy was nominated for an Academy Award for her performance, 
and gave birth to her son, Joseph Wiley Luft, the day before the ceremony. She was such a shoo-in that NBC built a tower outside of her hospital window to catch her reaction when her name was announced on the television. But the moment never came. Grace Kelly was awarded instead for her performance in The Country Girl, much to almost everyone in Hollywood's disappointment. Even Kelly's father thought that Judy was more deserving. Judy's snub was most likely the Academy's payback for her less than desirable behavior as an actor and all the scandals she had been involved in. And Grace Kelly represented the beautiful, educated, and classy woman the Hollywood so desired. Someone predicted that if Judy doesn't win an Oscar, I'm convinced that she'll be so discouraged that it will be another five years before she tries another film. Unfortunately, they were right. The work she had done on the film, the heart and soul she had poured into it, seemed to have all been for nothing. The Luffs were completely broke, forcing Judy to tour around the West Coast, with relatively poor reception from audiences. Thankfully, CBS offered Judy a tantalizing offer to do a television broadcast of the act she had done at the palace years before. She grabbed at the chance and ended up drawing in 40 million viewers. CBS signed her for three more shows, one a year through 1958. She made her first appearance in Las Vegas in July 1956, where Sid said that she was happier than she had ever been. The run lasted for only five weeks before Judy returned to the palace for a total of 17 weeks. The Luffs moved into a new house in Holmby Hills, where they were neighbors with Lana Turner, whose daughter Cheryl was good friends with Liza, Lauren Bacall and Humphrey Bogart, and Joan Bennett. They joined the Holmby Hills Rat Pack, where Sid was not exactly welcome. At one party, Humphrey Bogart taunted Sid, and the two ended up having a physical altercation. Bacall said, We were an odd assortment, but we liked each other so much, and every one of us had a wild sense of the ridiculous. The group lasted until Bogart was diagnosed with cancer and the Rat Pack title was picked up by Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis Jr., and Peter Lawford. Unfortunately, CBS canceled Judy's third planned television special since she and the executives could not agree on a format to do it in. A spokesman for CBS said, We just think she doesn't want to work. The Luffs sued CBS for libel for over $1 million, earning them a plethora of unsavory press. Still, Judy was able to perform at the Dominion Theatre in London and returned to Vegas in 1957. The New Year's Eve performance went poorly, and Judy got into a shouting match with some of the audience members. She ended the run early and forfeited $100,000, which was probably not the wisest decision, since the Lefts were still in financial trouble. Thankfully, throughout 1958, she had made somewhat of a comeback around other parts of the United States. Screenwriter Nunnally Johnson offered Judy the lead in his film, The Three Faces of Eve, based on the true story of a woman with three different personalities. She considered it, but ended up passing, and the role went to Joanne Woodward, who won an Oscar for her performance. Along with her pills, Judy was now an alcoholic and had extremely violent mood swings. The Loves had a long list of debts and, despite Judy's constant touring, never had enough money to break even. The money was spent on taxes, people working in the left home, and Judy's pills. But mostly, Sid was to blame for their constant financial struggles. He gambled on his racehorses, had a completely custom-made wardrobe, was one of the first people in Hollywood to purchase a Mercedes-Benz. Once, while in Vegas, Judy had to perform an entire second show just to make up for all of the money Sid had lost while gambling. One of her chorus boys said she was furious, and he couldn't blame her. There she was, used again. The Luffs barely spent any time together, and when they did, they were usually fighting. 
Judy started an affair with Frank Sinatra, as well as several unknown women. She told her confidant, Harry Rubin, that, you know, when you've eaten everything in the world there is to eat, you've got to find new things. In November of 1959, Judy was sent to a hospital in Manhattan, New York, to recover from acute hepatitis, a result of her years of pills and drinking. She was seriously overweight and suffering from pain and memory loss. When she was released in January 1960, doctors told her she probably only had about five years to live and wouldn't be able to perform anymore. She said, Want to know something funny? I didn't care. I just didn't care. All I cared about was that my children needed me. Suddenly, the pressure was off. She rested throughout the entirety of 1960, making her first public outing to support her good friend, John F. Kennedy, at a fundraiser for the Democratic Party. The two had met at the premiere of A Star is Born and would often talk to each other on the phone about their troubles, and sometimes Kennedy would ask Judy to sing for him over the line. Judy moved to England in the fall of 1960 and performed to enthusiastic audiences at the Palladium and in Paris. She even went to sing for troops in Germany at the request of Kennedy and celebrated his presidential election at the Savoy Hotel. Sid found Judy a different manager as he wanted to try other ways of making money, including working on a system to allow airplane passengers to listen to music in their own seats. Freddie Fields, his replacement, was definitely a much better choice. Judy said, something clicked. He seemed to know how to do exactly what I could not do, channel my work. She also hired David Bagelman as her second manager, and the three of them became thick as thieves. It's not like the usual artist-manager contract. We're partners. They see that the lights work and the curtain goes up. They found schools in New York for the children, and they found this apartment, she told Show Business Illustrated. Fields booked a concert tour for Judy that started in Dallas and got her a small but important part in the movie Judgment and Nuremberg. It had been almost six years since her last appearance on screen. In the scene I'm about to play, where Judy's character is cross-examined by Maximilian Schell, he remembered that. Judy asked me, Can you hit me more, off-camera, be tougher on me? Because then I can feel more, I can give more. She had to break down and get tears, and so I did it for her, much more than what was written in the script. I invented a lot of things until she finally broke down. Then afterwards, she sent me flowers and a little note. Thank you for being so mean to me. The Nuremberg Laws were stated September 15, 1935. Where were you at that time? In Nuremberg. Did you know these laws? Were you aware that the physical relationship with Jews was against the law? Yes. Were you aware that in Nuremberg, and in Nuremberg in particular, not only a physical relationship with Jews was viewed with disdain, but every social contact? Yes. Were you aware that it might have some danger for you, personally? Yes, I was aware of it. But how can you discard a friendship from day to day because of some... That is another question, Miss Valner. I did not ask you that question. Were you aware of it? Yes, I was aware. And yet you still continue to see each other? Yes. Remember, it was brought out at the tribunal that Mr. Pilschein bought you things. Candy and cigarettes? Yes. Remember that sometimes he bought you flowers? Yes, he bought me many things. That was because he was kind. He was the kindest man I ever knew. When in conversation with playwright and friend Noel Coward, Judy said, That part that I took in Judgment at Nuremberg is a wonderful, wonderful role. 
It will probably last only eight minutes on the screen, but what happens in those eight minutes is important, and it was challenging. I've always wanted to work with Stanley Kramer. I have a great admiration for him. Why does an actress take a part like that? Because the correct people are involved, much more important than billing and starring. She also thought the movie was important, especially living through the actual events, and wanted people to learn something from it. Her performance earned her an Academy Award nomination for Best Supporting Actress, but lost to Rita Moreno and West Side Story. Judy returned to the tour after filming finished, and audiences noticed that she had changed for the better. Judy even said that 1961 was the best year of her life. She credited her resurgence as a mix of working very hard and very diligently, and being at your best whenever you do work. In order to do that, you have to enjoy what you're doing. And then there's always an element of luck and timing, and I seem to have gotten caught up in a lovely whirlwind that is quite invigorating. Judy performed in venues like Carnegie Hall and the Hollywood Bowl, setting records at both. Her next project was the CBS television special with Dean Martin and Frank Sinatra, which was recorded over the span of three days in January 1962 and aired on February 25th, becoming the highest rated special on CBS at the time. Being so good. Oh, you're so good. I was good. good. I was good. So oh, I was good. Yeah. yeah. You enjoyed it? Yes. Every bit of it? I loved it. How come I got no flour? <laughs> come with me. Thank you, Frankie. <laughs> Let me! Let me! Let me! Let me! Live under your spell. Come on, keep doing it. Her next film was A Child is Waiting, alongside Burt Lancaster. The film was originally intended to be directed by Stanley Kramer, but he was caught up with post-production on It's a Mad, 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 Mad World and asked John Cassavetes to take over. Cassavetes had only directed two films prior, but already had a specific style and was looking forward to working on the film. Both Judy and Lancaster were unhappy with his directorial style and didn't cooperate very well on set. At one point, crew members had to physically separate Cassavetes and Garland when they started fighting. To be fair, Cassavetes wanted there to be tension between his leads and exploited Judy's insecurities. He forced Lancaster to verbally attack Judy in a scene, but Stanley Kramer, who was still producer, didn't allow it to be in the final cut. Lancaster said he told Cassavetes, You cannot take an actor, even if you're right, when he is so against something and make him do it. You've got to find some other way of doing it that he can live with and make it right. The movie ended up flopping at the box office, and Cassavetes blamed Kramer for changing his entire vision for the movie. He cast actual children with mental disabilities and said he wanted to make the kids funny, to show that they were human and warm, not cases, but kids. The difference in the two versions is that Stanley's picture said that retarded children belong in institutions, and the picture I shot said retarded children are better in their own way than supposedly healthy adults. I'm going to sing the first part of it alone, all the way through, and then afterwards uh, we can uh, break it down line by line. All right? Here's the way it goes. 
After a standoff with Sid, resulting in claims from Judy that he had slapped her, Judy convinced the police that Sid was untrustworthy around her children. She left America with them for England, where she was to film her last movie, I Could Go On Singing. Judy was extremely anxious about Sid's next move and the safety of her children, and the set of her film was fraught with tension. Judy thought the film was a load of shit, but only wanted to do it so she could work with her good friend, Dirk Bogard, and live in England for a few months. Bogard said, She was in despair for her children, in despair because she didn't have anywhere to live. Sid had made her frightened of going back to America, and in despair because of a script she loathed. Everything was on top of her. She felt trapped. Judy attempted suicide after the first day of filming by swallowing an overdose of pills. She blamed the director, Ronald Neem, for being too distant and unwelcoming of her, saying, I'm a goddamn star. I need help. She started experiencing the violent mood swings that had plagued her years before, treating everyone on set as nastily as she could. She refused to film certain scenes, resulting in a rather choppy final product. Despite the extremely troubled production, Judy and Bogard improvised the entire last 15 minutes of the movie, and for a moment, made everyone working on the film feel like it had been worth it. I feel awful, baby. Have some of this, come on. Oh, no more coffee. No, mm-hmm. I couldn't take any more coffee. If you You'd have to feed me through the vein. I'm full. I'm full to the brim of the whole goddamn world. Yes, but not come on. Be good. Drink this, come on. Have you come to take me home? No, I've come to take you to the theater. Oh, no, you haven't. Look, I'm not going back there. I'm I not have. going back there ever, ever again. Listen, they are waiting. I don't care if they're fasting. You just give them their money back and tell them to come back next fall. Jenny, it's a sellout. I'm always a sellout. You promised. No waiting. There's George, George and I. There's 200,000. I know. Sure. I know. Just let them wait. The hell with them. I can't be spread so thin. I'm just one person. Judy returned to the United States and was met with a six-week run in Vegas, as well as a proposal for a weekly television show with CBS. She was offered somewhere between $25,000 and $30,000 each episode, and would have complete ownership over the tapes to do with them what she pleased. Judy was happy with this situation, and the first episode aired in September 1963, with Mickey Rooney as her first guest. Her children were one of the main joys in her life, and she would talk about them whenever given the chance. In a 1962 radio interview, she said, Liza was a magnificent dancer and also an awfully good actress, and she's very pretty. My nine-year-old girl is the Gertrude Lawrence of Scarsdale. There's just no holding her. My little boy Joe, he's seven. He doesn't know quite whether he wants to be a conductor or a mechanic. I don't know what they're going to do. They can do whatever they want, but thank God they're talented. Her children performed on her show for several episodes as well. Shine. Wait till the 
The president at CBS, James Aubrey Jr., disliked Judy and did everything in his power to make working on the show as difficult as possible for her. He fired and rehired the entire crew, made her the brunt of endless jokes during episodes, and forced her to create a formula for the show so that it was rewritten so many times that Judy usually had to learn what was going to happen right before taping started. She said, The network wanted me to be sort of the girl next door, but they couldn't find the right house or the right door. I've never been the girl next door. I didn't want to do a variety program either. I thought we could use movie techniques to get away from pure television quality. But everyone kept telling me, just take our word for it. We know what we're doing. And I took their word for it. I believe they did know what they were doing. After her friend JFK was assassinated, Judy planned an entire episode around honoring his memory and singing patriotic songs. CBS put their foot down and didn't even allow her to mention Kennedy's name claiming that by the time the show was to air, Kennedy would be forgotten. The Judy Garland show was turning out to be a disastrous flop that was costing CBS large amounts of money, as well as Aubrey's patience. The show was canceled in March of 1964, and Judy's hopes were dashed. Terry Turner of the Chicago Sun-Times noted that CBS hired Judy because she was a star, and then they wouldn't let her be one. Judy reconciled with Sid Luft on Valentine's Day, 1964, and the two moved into a house together near Sunset Boulevard. Luft learned that Judy's manager and lover, David Begelman, had been pocketing money from Judy and tried to warn her, but she didn't believe him, and they ended up divorcing for good in 1965. It was later discovered that Begelman had stolen at least $700,000 from Judy, including $50,000 from someone who had threatened to blackmail her with a photograph of her lying nude in a hospital in London. Judy was once again in debt, thanks to Bagelman. Her new beau was Mark Heron, an actor seven years younger than her. She asked him to move in with her and eventually travel with her to Australia, where she would be performing. In 1965, on the Gypsy Rose Lee show, Judy recounted her experience in Australia. Australia. Well, we might as well talk about it. It's agony. Because no one told me if they like you in Sydney, they loathe you in Melbourne. Yes, I know. You know if they like you in Melbourne, they hate you in Sydney. But if you just go there, two cents plane, and sing away, and they go, yeah, in Sydney, they just say, they don't like her in Melbourne. And you come in and say, hello, and they go, get out! Go away! You know? And I said, well, I can't get out until I've sung. Because I'm supposed to sing here. We don't want you to sing, ladies. Just stay, you know, just say, just get out. Out, I, I said, no, 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 that, you've not advertised it. Either. So then they all got rather drunk. Cause they, they on that the beer? Bars. Yes, kangaroo beer. Oh, my yeah. God, that beer has hair on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's really, the, no, I've never the audience is just mm, blurr, you know? uh -huh. And I carry a hand mic. And some members of the press sitting around here would take great pleasure in grabbing the coy, the hand mic, and I'd start washing cars, and boom, you know, get so bad. And sort of a chunk of war between uh, the press. To me, the press was saying, why don't you come down here and get drunk instead? <laughs> <laughs> While in Hong Kong after her stint in Australia, Judy overdosed during Typhoon Viola. Heron found her passed out on the bathroom floor, and since no ambulance could be used during the typhoon, found a wheelchair in their hotel, and pushed her to the hospital himself. She was in a coma for over 15 hours, and news spread around the world that she had died. 
When she had recovered, Judy returned to England, where she attempted suicide again, but was still able to make it to the Night of 100 Stars event at the Palladium. Celebrities were only supposed to be there to offer support and help raise money for the fundraiser, but Judy ended up being persuaded by the audience to perform instead of the headlining act, which was the Beatles. Judy's confidence was back, and she toured around Rome and Athens before headlining the Palladium again with her daughter Liza performing as well. Her voice was starting to fade after years of drug abuse, as well as just the customary changes that come with aging. Magazines were constantly picking on her, but no matter what, the crowds always supported Judy. Hollywood no longer trusted her to work with them anymore. She was turned down for roles like Mama Rose in Gypsy and Helen Lawson in Valley of the Dolls. Judy was actually set to star in Valley of the Dolls, in which one of the characters had actually been inspired by her but director Mark Robson found her to be too sweet and likable for playing an embittered and unsympathetic character. Judy said she got fired again. Oh, I know the studio says I withdrew for personal reasons, but don't believe a word of it. Judy Garland was fired, canned. I wanted the part. I needed the money. But I have to be honest, Valley of the Dolls isn't my kind of motion picture. Mark and Judy returned to California in 1965, where Judy was granted a divorce from Sid Luft. And audio tapes recorded around this time, she said. Sid Luft is an animal. He's just some kind of breed. And I'll tell the world whenever I can that he's a thief, a blackmailer, a sadist and a man who doesn't even care one bit, one way or the other, about any other living soul, let alone his nice children. He's never contributed one penny to their upbringing. He's never contributed one hour to their peace of mind. He's told them how untalented they are, how stupid they are, who needs them. He's told them how he doesn't like them. That's a nice man. That's a big, upstanding tramp. Judy married Mark Heron in Las Vegas and felt like she had finally found happiness. Unfortunately, Mark was gay, and Judy also began to suspect that he had only married her to further his career, as he was relatively unknown until the public knew that they had gotten together. Judy began to suffer severe anger issues, which were further exacerbated by her now using heroin and morphine. Not only was she a danger to herself, but now she began to be violent towards others. She would slash herself with a razor blade and blame Mark Heron, who decided it was best just to separate himself from Judy and move in with his boyfriend of several years. The two divorced after only five months of marriage, and Judy testified that he had beaten her. Judy matched Liza with an Australian singer named Peter Allen, and the two were married in March of 1967. At one point, mother and daughter learned that their respective partners had been sleeping with one another for months, but Liza remained with Peter and ended up completely cutting off contact with Judy. Lorna and Joey were stuck in the home with their mother, open to any sort of violence she would commit. She was prone to setting things on fire. Once, while vacationing in Hawaii with Mark, she lit his closet on fire and sat outside until the fire department came. 
Steve McQueen was staying next door and tried to help, but Judy brushed him aside, saying, Don't be a hero, Steve. This isn't the movies. Judy continued to tour, but was still completely broke, and Tom Green was hired to be her publicist. They also started a romantic relationship, and Green would help support Judy and her children with money out of his own pocket. Liza became the mother figure to her siblings, making sure they got to school and were fed. She even had her own stomach pump that she would use whenever Judy took too many pills. Despite all of the struggles they faced as a family, Judy still loved her children and encouraged them to do whatever made them happy. I'm mad about them. I know you are. Did you learn anything as a child star yourself in uh, treating your children? Uh, everybody says you were a victim of a stage mother and driving and you've got to be a success and that's the most important thing in the world in show business. I don't think I liked her well enough to to <laughs> to uh, learn and I was just scared of her and uh, uh, I I don't really know whether I uh, subconsciously raised my children uh, uh, the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think I did. I we just have an awful lot of fun and there full of sunshine, you right. know. Judy had to sell her house as she had no more money and signed with Group V, a company that would help manage her career, supply her with the necessities, and only required that she cut back on her drug use. Judy agreed and began a new tour starting at the Palace in New York City. Things quickly went downhill, with Judy getting into fights with Group V's owner and his wife, as well as missing entire performances or showing up in a drugged-up haze. In March 1968, Judy was warned that she had to pay her bill in order to remain with Group V or they would drop her. Tom Green decided the only thing to do was to hawk two of Judy's rings to get the money, and as a result of his good deed, Judy got him arrested for grand larceny. The relationship was officially over. She was also beginning to break ties with her children, whom she often kicked out of their home in New York, which forced them to stay with Liza. After accidentally confusing her son Joey for an intruder, Judy threw a butcher knife at him, though thankfully narrowly missed his head. A terrified Joey ran three blocks barefoot through Manhattan to his father's hotel. Lorna suffered a nervous breakdown and pleaded with her father to let her live with him. Judy was all alone and rarely had more than five dollars with her at a time. She would stay with friends throughout the country before renting an apartment in Boston. One person she stayed with said that, Judy made you feel you had run a two-minute mile. We have met any number of people who have said, I wish I had known she needed help. I would have taken care of her. Nonsense. Nobody could have done it. Judy met songwriter John Meyer and they quickly became engaged. Meyer had confidence that he could help Judy become as great she had once been and booked her a gig at the gay club where he played piano. From there, he was able to get her appearances on television and at London's premier supper club, Talk of the Town. But things quickly fizzled out after Judy had left Meyer exhausted. She moved on to Mickey Deans, a 34-year-old singer. They had first met when he was sent to deliver her amphetamines at her hotel. They'd married on March 15, 1969, but nobody showed up to their wedding reception. Judy said that, With Mickey, I feel that at last I've found the love I've been searching for all my life. The Deans traveled to Scandinavia for Judy's upcoming tour, which was a success. They moved to London, Judy's favorite place in the world. I've reached a point in my life where the most precious thing is compassion, and I get this here. On June 22, 1969, Mickey found Judy dead in the bathroom of an accidental barbiturate overdose. 
at the age of 47. Her body was flown to New York, where over 22,000 fans paid their respects. She was buried in Hartsdale's Ferncliff Cemetery. In a 1960 interview, Judy said, People think of me as a neurotic kid, full of fits and depressions, biting my fingernails to the bone, living under an eternal shadow of illness and collapse. Why do people insist on seeing an aura of tragedy around me always? My life isn't tragic at all. I laugh a lot these days. At myself, too. Lord, if I couldn't laugh at myself, I don't think I'd be alive. Well, Judy, our time has run out on us, and I want to thank you so much well, for being with really, us. It's I been a wonderful rather, visit. Rather rude of you. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the folks have got a little different insight to Judy Garland. Thank you so much, Judy. Yeah, bless you, darling. We'll be back. Thank you for listening to the episode. This was researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Audrey Cornell. The music was written by Nia D'Amelio. Gone But Not Forgotten is a part of the Trident Network. To learn more about our videos, live shows, and podcasts, please visit thetridentnetwork.com. Make sure to join me and my co-host Luis next week, where we talk about Judy Garland's movies and much more. We'll see you all next week. Hope you're having a great day.